Welcome to this podcast brought to you by the Pod Academy. The author of those words, if not the language, will be familiar to all of you. Apart from that rather terrifying yelp of death, they were written by one William Shakespeare, in Richard II, in that instance performed in Arabic at London's Globe Theatre, as part of summer 2012's Globe to Globe Festival. That festival saw the Bard of Avon performed in 37 different languages, and curiously enough, there were more performances in Arabic than in any other language. I'm Tanjul Rashid, and I'm in the garden of Cairo's historic Dutch cultural centre to explore that curious fact and the phenomenon of Shakespeare in Arabic with one of the rising stars of comparative literature, Professor Margaret Lipton of Boston University. Her book, Hamlet's Arab Journey, has recently been published to great acclaim. In fact, it's been recommended in The Guardian as a quirky Christmas gift. It charts the incredible path trod by Shakespeare from England to Egypt, along the way becoming the most authoritative body of work in the Arab world after the Quran and the Prophet's own sayings. Professor Lippin, um, this summer was quite a treat. A Palestinian Richard II, a Sudanese Cymbeline, and Iraqi Romeo and Juliet. Uh, do you want to start with those performances? Sure, first of all, with the World Shakespeare Festival, I want to say that it's interesting because all three of those productions were really in different languages. Mm. One was in more or less uh, Iraqi Arabic, one was in very classical Arabic with Palestinian production, and the one in Juba Arabic uh, was very purposefully in a South Sudanese yes. dialect to separate itself from the Khartoum dialect. This gives you a hint about the diversity of Arab Shakespeare, and that should be the background of everything I'm going to say that will try to depict it as somehow unified or organized around a single theme. So let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, how far back does Shakespeare go in the Arab world? Shakespeare has been present in the Arab world since the 1890s in Arabic, although before that there have been productions in English, including one off the coast of Socotra, which is now Yemen, in uh, Shakespeare's lifetime. But we won't really count that. It wasn't really the Arab world, and it wasn't really Arab Shakespeare. Arab Shakespeare became important, first of all, as fodder for the stage people had discovered in the 19th century. Um, first Arab or rulers in the Arab world, like Hadid Ismail in Egypt, and then emerging middle classes discovered that there was this thing called theater that you could go see. So was it part of the westernization processes that were going on around this time, um, the, you yeah. know, the opera and... Yes, I, I wouldn't say westernization, but yeah, the same thing as the opera. Modernization is mm. seen as becoming equal with the West. It wasn't necessarily seen as joining with the West, although that may have been how Ismail looked at it. Um, and then after that, it gradually became domesticated. It took root here. And 
the, the type of Shakespeare productions that were done changed. There are even stories that uh, Shakespeare himself was an Arab by the name of Sheikh Zubair. Uh, were you ever taken in by that myth? <laughs> One, um, <laughs> this originated as a joke by an Iraqi literary critic. Um, not a serious argument, but it was later made into a sort of chauvinist serious argument. One argument was that how could someone who hated um, Jews, Turks, and Englishmen so much as Shakespeare did not have been an Arab? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it is nonsense, but it's indicative in a way of the affinity that people feel with Shakespeare. That's right, because um, in that other notion of Shakespeare lovers, uh, India, there is also a myth of that Shakespeare was an Indian, Shakespeare, a, oh, a saint. And so wh why do you think that uh, Shakespeare is so prone to appropriation by other cultures and nations? That's a really good question, and I am going to have to work really hard to avoid saying anything about the universality of Shakespeare mm -hmm. and how he captures you know, the whole possible range of human emotion because that would be the obvious thing to say. And if I do want to say that, which is a deeply politically incorrect thing to say because it is, after all, a British product that is being foisted on people in a colonial context a lot of the time, although that's not what my book is about. But if I do want to say that, I would say it's because Shakespeare drew from so many different sources. I mean, he's got stuff that could be traced to the Thousand and One Nights and to the medieval storytelling tradition. And he has things said in Italy where he never went um, and so because he stole so widely, mm. people recognize bits of themselves. And at the start of your book, you, you quote the, the critical wisdom that every nation sees her visage in Shakespeare's mirror. How have different nations seen themselves in Shakespeare? Well, what's really happened, of course, is that every nation has turned Shakespeare into a mirror image of itself, or of its alter ego, or counter-self, for instance, in France. Shakespeare was un-French, he was mm. the drunken British savage who nonetheless had this overflowing talent who had to deal with. So, so why so, did the uh, French uh, not take to Shakespeare and say the Germans uh, took to Shakespeare very quickly? Um, you know, it depends so much on the individuals who are influential in a cultural context at a certain time. You know, all it takes is one Voltaire that's right. to develop an allergy and there you go, is the French response. I think it's very individual, really, and then it becomes, it grows into a tradition and culture. Your book, Hamlet's Arab Journey, is about Shakespeare in the Arab tradition, and uh, Hamlet's Arab Journey is one that began right here in Cairo, did it not? Yeah, that's right. Um, it began in this Syro-Lebanese immigrant community here that was writing for this new thing called the theater that I mentioned. and. They needed script fodder, and they didn't think about Shakespeare as some towering idol to be done justice to, or you know, to be treated with carefully somehow uh, with special tools. Uh, they just adapted whatever whatever came to hand through the French. Shakespeare was introduced here through French sources. That was in the 1890s, the early 20th century. Then later, enough people made it a priority to learn English and translate directly from the original, uh, that there came to be translations directly from, from Shakespeare. And there were some uh, rather funny and amusing uh, productions of Shakespeare around that time, were they not? Uh, including the early ones. Well, the, the first, the, I can't say the earliest, the earliest extant uh, 
Arabic language Hamlet we have is a musical with a happy ending. But you know, I, I don't want you to blame the backwardness of Arab theater for that or Arab theater goers, which a lot of Arab critics have done for a hundred years. Uh, it's really the fault of the French. It, it's all Dumas. <laughs> Yes, I, I discovered in doing this research for my book that I thought was superfluous. I'm like, why should I look into the early translations? It's, they've been researched, they've been done, but no one had ever looked to see what French sources. Everyone knew that the early guys translated from the French, but no one knew what the sources were. And once I looked into it, I was like, no, this is all Dumas. He has a happy ending. He has a love scene between Hamlet and Ophelia. Many foreign Shakespeare productions were doing the rounds in Cairo at the time, weren't they? Um, especially film productions. Would you like to talk a little about that? Yeah. We can talk about Laurence Olivier. His Hamlet film was screened here widely. But from the beginning, Soviet, for instance, Yudkovich's Othello um, won a prize in Damascus in it wasn't simply a British phenomenon. Right. Films and plays came from all over the theater-speaking world. And did the Egyptians appear to demonstrate any preference for one film over the other, for example, the Russian over the English one? One of the things that surprised me in doing this research was that the single most influential Hamlet text in Egypt is not an English play, but a Russian film. I don't know if people preferred it or if they simply knew Olivier by heart by this point and were looking for an alternative, looking for a third way, and politically also might have been interested in something non-English for that reason, for the reason of its being non-English. Uh, but whatever the reason, the Russian film resonated. It was about dictatorship. It posed stark moral choices. It wasn't about, you know, a man who can make up his mind. And that would be Kozintsev? Yes, that's uh, Grigory Kozintsev in 1964. And of course people don't know Russian at that point very much. Not a lot of people know Russian, but they can still hear Pasternak's translation, the rhythms of it, and they know who Pasternak is uh, because of Dr. Zhivago. Mm. Uh, and they can hear Shostakovich's score, which is almost... I, I mean, how do, how do you quantify these things in talking about Shakespeare appropriation? But I think it's one of the most important factors. And did that help to have Shakespeare shorn of its colonial associations? For sure. I think this showed people a path of how they could domesticate Shakespeare to their own political situation. Um, in the case of Hamlet, this was very obvious once you see it, right? The time is out of joint, something is rotten in the state. In the case of other Shakespeare plays, it took longer. I think the comedies haven't been domesticated yet. Uh, but certainly the Soviet and Eastern European appropriations of Hamlet showed a way in which Arab directors and eventually playwrights could make Shakespeare their own. It's very interesting that um, in some parts of the world, famously in the Indian subcontinent, Shakespeare was introduced uh, in the colonial classroom, but uh, you're saying that wasn't the case in Egypt. It was. Oh, it was also the case. Uh, oh, yes, it was. But to whom, right? To what, to, to what portion of the population and... And again, that created a background against which these other non-British readings became all the more influential because they were familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. I mean, I talk in the book about uh, Yusuf Shaheen, who's obviously got a huge obsession with Shakespeare and particularly with Hamlet throughout his career, the Egyptian uh, 
uh, filmmaker Yusuf Shaheen. And um, the way that he shows, he is in comedy Shakespeare at Victoria College in Alexandria in his, uh, his Alexander trilogy. Yes, very much so. I do think, though, that that was the exception. There's, I don't know, maybe we could posit a spectrum of colonialness whereby the English Department of Cairo University is less colonial, you know, and people there are doing Shakespeare because their professors, who are Egyptians, love it. And the, uh, the influx of uh, Soviet productions was, was also part of a, a drive by, from, from the Soviet Union to cultural diplomacy. Yes, the push was Soviet cultural diplomacy and uh, Nasser's rapprochement with the Soviet Union after 1955. And again, the pull was ironically that people saw some similarities between their own situation and the Soviet situation. The Soviet relationship with the uh, Arab world is very interesting. Um, and your next book is about that relationship in, in, in culture and the arts. Can you tell us a little about that? I can't tell you much yet in great detail because there's so much to this Russian-Arab relationship, even predating the Soviet Union. Mikhail Naime, who is supposed to be one of the founders of modern Arabic literature from the Mokhtar school, right, from the United States, in fact spends a few formative years, around 1905, very significant time to be there in Russia, in, or in Ukraine, in Poltava, at the seminary there. Uh, so modern Arabic literature is involved with Russian literature from the beginning. Um, modern Arabic thought, the Nakhda or Renaissance school, the beginning of the 20th century, 19th century, is involved. Um, so Muhammad Abdul, the Islamic thinker, is corresponding with Tolstoy. So, you know, to the great prophet and thinker, Leo Tolstoy, whose thoughts have enlightened our world, I'm not quoting it right, but you get the idea. Uh, from that to a very, very different relationship in this Nasserist period that we were talking about, where it was a question of study abroad missions, it was a question of leftist young men, some of whom had been imprisoned under Nasser for their communist convictions then being sent to the Soviet Union to study, and in many cases being disappointed or surprised or coming across not only the official culture, but also uh, counterculture, like samizdat and distant literature, and stuff like that, but also world culture, you're reading, getting access to Hemingway in, in the Russian intellectual context. And has this at all declined over time? Uh, has anything replaced it? The love for Russian literature is oddly persistent, even among Arab writers of my generation and yours, you know? I don't know if that part has declined, the love for Dostoevsky, for instance. Right. The identification with Dostoevsky. It's well known that Nagib Mahfouz drew on Dostoevsky and everybody, of course, at least in Egypt, everybody writing prose is somehow doing so in the shadow of Nagib Mahfouz. As to replace it, I think, I don't know if you can identify a single center now mm. of cultural production. Of cultural radiance, yeah. Well, one of the uh, main reactions to your book was one of surprise. It was mentioned in The Guardian as a quirky book. Um, <laughs> But uh, you're saying we shouldn't really be surprised at the ways that global culture can come to an Arab country. Uh, well, 
And the way that an Arab country, I want to insist on the active side of this. It's not simply passive reception, sitting there on the beach watching what the waves bring. It's also the way that an Arab country can, or Arab writers in particular, I, I want to talk about individuals and their agency and their interests. It's just like a rock band chooses its influences from you know, the vast variety available and then seeks out more things that are like that, like whatever. Um, has influenced that people choose what to be influenced by. So there's that, how Arab writers have appropriated world culture. It doesn't need to be linear, it doesn't need to be bilateral. This is my big insistence, and that's why I'm writing the Russia book. It's not because I'm from Russia and I happen to have the language. It's, I never thought I'd work on anything Russian until I came back around to it through through Arab writers, just to say, look guys, it's not only post-colonial, and it's not autochthonous, and only about Arab turoth, or Arab mm. you know, literary heritage, heritage, Arab classics, classics of Arabic literature and thought. It's also about an engagement with the literatures of the world. From the beginning, right, with Persian literature, in the Abbasid period, there's, there's always been an interlocutor culture. Is this what you call the global kaleidoscope in your book? Sure, that's the metaphor I adopted. It has um, advantages and disadvantages as a metaphor, but the idea that you never see a cultural object pure, you see it through a kaleidoscope of previous appropriations of it by other people. The Thousand and One Nights is um, any period of the appropriation of that text by any culture would provide an example of this argument. Returning to Hamlet, the specific play that you deal with in your, in your book, um, through which kaleidoscope, kaleidoscopes have Arabs seen specifically Hamlet? There was the period in which the main interlocutor culture was French, and it was about neoclassical culture, and then romantic culture, Victor Hugo and his obsession. Uh, with Shakespeare as a romantic counterweight to old dead classical norms, and this really appealed to the romantic nationalists um, in the Levant who were opposed to the Ottoman Empire. People knew from very early on, this is one of the things about not being Anglophone, or not being Anglophone first, is that people were aware of a global kaleidoscope. They were aware of a multiplicity of versions very early in um, in the 30s, people were writing columns and critiques saying, oh, well, you know, there's German Hamlet like this, but the British Hamlet like that. Um, they were aware of the options. What have uh, Egyptians or Arabs seen in Hamlet? What messages have they taken from the play? Um, the main message has been about justice has been about the pursuit of justice in a world that is out of joint, in a state that is rotten, um, in a dictatorship that is rigged against you. I mean, look at Hamlet. His election was stolen. His stepfather married his mother. And the, Arab, the Arabic proverb for pragmatism, the Arabic way of encapsulating pragmatism is whoever marries my mom, I'll call my uncle. I mean, so Hamlet spoke to that, to that uh, re rejection of pragmatism, damn it. You know, the standing up for principle, and even if it gets you, as Hamlet is perceived, to have been martyred. I suppose that's quite different from the individualist icon idolized in the Anglo-American context. 
Obviously, this is a very different Hamlet than um, many of my readers from the Anglo-American tradition will have grown up to expect their Hamlet will be kind of a Holden Caulfield or a Coleridge or... Stephen Deedlis. Sure, sure, yes, absolutely. And so, uh, coming back to your question about the surprises and the quirks, um, obviously there are those who will be surprised if the Arab world has theater at all because, oh, doesn't Islam prohibit uh, representational <laughs> performance? Uh, but the biggest surprise should be for people who know and love Hamlet in this other incarnation, in the Stephen Daedalus version, to find that, no, he could be a firebrand, he can be a hero, he can be Che Guevara. And when he does stumble and hesitate, that's not a fulfillment of his role as Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's an abandonment of it. What role does the context of Nasser and Nasserism play in the reception of Hamlet? This is something that surprised me. Um, it turns out to resonate very deeply. And this, one of the anonymous reviewers of my manuscript sort of drew my attention to the fact that I was disproportionately quoting Nasserist intellectuals. And that was when I really started to think deeply about why is it? Why is it that Hamlet has not been homogeneously, you know, I've been talking in very general terms, oh, Arabs think this or Egyptians think that, but it's a particular cadre and generation that it turns out has really taken this most to heart, this identification with Hamlet and this feeling of having been politically betrayed. Um, and a lot of them are Nasserists, so these are people for whom the death of Nasser and his replacement by this sort of odiously pragmatic, economically opening up, you know, making peace deals with Israel kind of Sadat figure uh, represents the biggest betrayal. And so Nasser becomes the ghost of Hamlet's father, the one whose mission you can't carry out because it's impossible, but whose, whose legacy you can't reject because that would be immoral. And so the post-Nasserist Hamlets have a brief flash of heroic, you know, oh, don't worry, we'll avenge you, daddy. Um, and then toward the late 70s fade into despair. Ironic, sarcastic, hilarious, wonderfully written despair. And does the ghost of Nasser still overshadow Hamlet in, in, in the Arab world today? or? is our interpretations moving beyond this, uh, this legacy? The ghost of Nasser is very much present in Arab political discourse. You'll sometimes, I mean, not now, not today, but other days you will have seen his photo, Nasser's photo in Tahrir Square. However, the Hamlet interpretations I've seen recently have moved away from that, and more onto social conditions. The preoccupations have been more, oh, Hamlet is this ordinary kid riding the metro and it's overcrowded and his apartment is too small and can't move away from his family and realize himself as a man because of the economic situation. It's been more like that. You, of course, know the Arab Shakespeare scene better than anyone. Uh, do any contemporary interpretations from the Arab world uh, stand out? Well, the play that I was just sort of summarizing to you without naming it is Hany Akifi's play, uh, I Am Hamlet, Hamlet, which was conceived as a light little graduation project um, from directing school at the Creativity Center. So this is sort of a, a young, creative, quirky, if you will, outgrowth of state theater, state theater institutions here. 
Um, and yet his Hamlet is a young man sort of haunted by a historical legacy that he doesn't even fully understand. So unlike the, the Hamlet that someone his father's age would have produced, Tanny is in his 30s, early 30s maybe, mid-30s, and his Hamlet is just downtrodden by the crowdedness of Cairo and the dirt and the impossibility of doing anything moral at all. You mentioned uh, Tahrir Square and that uh, Nasser, photos of Nasser uh, frequently it, right? uh, appear in, in Tahrir Square, yes, that's right. Um, but also uh, Hamlet turns up at Tahrir Square every now and then, does he not? Uh... I mean, I, yes, Hamlet doesn't turn up. The slogan, to be or not to be, has been detached from Shakespeare and people use it who may not even know that it comes from Hamlet, although some people use it very conscious of its Shakespearean background. And this is so been... it shows up on signs in English, but also occasionally in Arabic. I've blogged some of these on my yes. uh, Arab Shakespeare blog. You can find the pictures. They do turn up, and that's because to be or not to be is not a hesitation about whether or not to kill yourself. It is a determination about whether or not to live. Shall we be or not be? Yeah, shall we seize our destiny and exist in a historical way? Or shall we just be wiped from the pages of history by our own passivity? So it, it's read that way and it's always read collectively. You know, it's the nation that's going to be or not to be, or the Egyptian people, or the Syrian people, you see, it's Syria not to When the Islamic fundamentalist presidential candidate Hazem Abu Ismail was disqualified, I noticed he was dubbed in the press as Hamlet Abu Ismail. Why do you think that? Uh, oh, I think he was, I, well, that was an old school use of Hamlet, like he was trying to decide to run or not to run for the presidency. That, that discourse persists, too. I, but that was, I mean, interestingly, this, so that was, uh, I believe, a Western journalist, or a, oh, right. a, a journalist said, I think that was the Arabist blog, so I think that was a journalist with a primarily Western audience, if I'm not mistaken, I forget where I'm quoting from. I but, can't remember either. Uh, but, but so, yeah, look, look to see, because like if Hamlet is used in, for instance, The Economist, mm. it will always be the hesitant Hamlet, yeah. you know, Hamlet, Obama deciding whether or not to do something or other. So it had nothing to do with uh, Hazem's uh, complex family, family scandals and... Uh, oh no, that would be interesting, and his, uh, his mother and yeah, stepmother yeah, issues, exactly. stepfather issues, I don't know. The intriguing twists and turns of Hamlet's Arab journey continues to take. My thanks to Professor Lipping, whose book, Hamlet's Arab Journey, is published by Princeton University Press and is available from all good bookshops. You can also read more about it on her excellent blog, Arab Shakespeare. I'm Tanjil Rashid. Cheers for listening. وَلْنُشَيَّعُ إِلَى مَثْوَاهِ وَلْنَبْكِ بِصِدْقٍ عَلَى مَنْ مَاتَ قَبْلَ أَوَانِهِ listening to this podcast there's a transcript and links to more information on our website podacademy.org where you'll also find lots more podcasts on a wide range of subjects from bells to bees and rap to charles dickens Music